It is such a privilege to uh, talk with you about Jesus this morning, and especially to talk about Jesus to folk who have um, have consecrated your bodies as living sacrifices, which is a reasonable expectation that you might demonstrate the good and perfect and acceptable will of the Lord. Would you stand, please, to honor the reading of God's Word? It's a custom at our church <clears throat> to stand when God's Word is read, and I'll be reading from Psalm 51. Do you have it? you have your Bibles? you bring your Bibles to chapel? Read with me. Find it. But, but I need you to hurry because that clock is ticking. Psalm 51. I just want to note that at the beginning of Psalm, at the, the, kind of the title of Psalm 51, it's called a Psalm of, I wonder if anybody else has it written in yours. What's it called? Psalm of Repentance or Confession. Okay. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth. Where? Say it. In the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop. I'll be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy. Let me hear gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. And I just wonder if you would join with me audibly this part of David's prayer, beginning with verse verse 10. Everyone say it together, please. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Keep going. Do not cast me out from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Keep going. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Keep going. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Okay, we'll stop there. God bless you. You can be seated. It's a movie not too long ago, and the catchphrase of the movie was that life was like a box of chocolates. But I don't think life is like a box of chocolates. I think life is like a smoke alarm. I watched a guy one time blow cigarette smoke on a smoke alarm, and it didn't even go off. But Becca and I have lived in houses where anytime the temperature reaches 80 degrees, those rascals go off, man. They just go off. Um, one time when we were in our first house, we were living in Montgomery, Alabama, in the middle of the night, it went off and we couldn't make it stop. And we pushed all the buttons and we flipped all the circuit breakers and, and I got a stool and a baseball bat and I made it go off in the middle of the night. <laughs> And for years, it just hung down in our hallway, just kind of waiting on somebody to fix it, but I never would. (laughs) 
for smoke for smoke alarms to work right, they got to be calibrated. Got to be calibrated. Beck says that's too big a word to use when I preach, but it's the best word. Calibrated. One of the guiltiest moments in my life was in the eighth grade. That was before I came to CBC. But anyway, in the eighth grade, I, I know you'll be really impressed with this. I had been nominated as the Valentine's King of Arnold Junior High School, Columbus, Georgia. I knew you'd like it. But the dilemma was, in order to be actually crowned the king, I had to go to a Valentine's dance. Now, in my spiritual tradition, going to school dances was as serious a felony as going to movies. (laughs) And my choices were very clear. Either I would not go to the dance... Or I would go to hell, one of the two. (laughs) Well, while I was at the dance, (laughs) I felt really guilty. In fact, seriously, it was a very confusing night for me. All of my programming my calibration coerced guilt. And I felt pounds of guilt. But I wasn't sure that the proportion of my guilt was satisfactory to the amount of fun I was experiencing. And and the question really was one of calibration. Was the guilt I felt that night, was it true guilt? Was it sufficient guilt? Was it proportionate guilt? Or was the guilt I felt that night sort of a carryover from spiritual hypersensitivity that bordered on legalism? I didn't know the answer then, and I really don't know the answer now. But I found a better question to ask. And the question is, how can I educate my conscience so that I can be certain the smoke alarm goes off when there's really a fire and it doesn't go off because I got the wrong calibration. Now the world has an answer for us and they say, well just follow your heart. Just follow your heart and then you'll, you know, be true to your heart. But what if your heart tells you to sell out? What if your heart tells you to hurt someone else? What if if your heart deceives you? I had a student in our church. We're we're real close to Christ for the Nations, and we're close to Southwestern University. We had a student preparing for the ministry. Not too long ago, she came and shared with my wife that she was a homosexual. And when we pointed out to her in Scripture that it was wrong, she said, yeah, but it can't be wrong because I've never felt so loved. I've never felt so complete. I've never felt so whole. 
And so in order to get anything out of this message today, you have to agree with me on this sentence. And I'll know that you agree with me on this sentence if I hear you say amen. And if you don't agree with me on this sentence, I'm going to have to stay on this first part too long and it'll take you past lunch. And I know you won't like that. So... So this is getting us into the message, and if you like this part, say amen, and then I'll get to the message. There must be a standard higher than our heart. Amen. And Psalm 51 is really for three groups of people. Psalm 51 is for a first group of people who have blown their life apart by sin, because that's what David had done. You know that this psalm was written on the heels of his adultery and his murder, and he's wrecked his family. You know that one of his sons is going to lead a rebellion and try to have him murdered and try to overthrow the throne. And it's just a mess. And some of you can relate to Psalm 51 because you blew your life apart by sin. You've got your own stories. And they're just as severe and just as treacherous as David's story. But there's a second group of people who will relate to Psalm 51. And they're people who, <clears throat> who have not blown their life apart by sin. But Psalm 51 is still for you because, listen... If David was capable of these kinds of decisions, what makes us think we're not capable of decisions like this? Come on. David was a warrior. He was a worshiper. He was as zealous for the things of God as any of us. And yet he made some really horrible decisions. And so Psalm 51 is for people who have the propensity to sin like David did. And then the third group for which Psalm 51, I think, is applicable is a group of people who know that they've got something wrong in their life. They know they're misaligned. They know they're out of joint. But they can't seem to accomplish any permanent change. It's like their spiritual journey is one step forward and two steps back. Psalm 51 helps with them because it shows us how to have some permanent change. How to ultimately overcome sin. Let's see how David does this. By the way, this is the psalm that put David back together again. Got four points. Number one, if you're going to be healed of sin, you've got to see sin the way God sees sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil <clears throat> in your sight. See, we've got this tendency to look at evil in a way that makes evil not look quite so evil. Everybody's got a favorite picture. You know, I learned early in ministry that if I tilt the angle of my chin just a little bit, you won't see this fat that hangs down under here. <laughs> I've learned that, I watch, I don't know where they teach this in Bible college, maybe, maybe, maybe they still do this in, will this work? Can I do this? Maybe they'd still do this in some of the leadership training, but they teach the ladies, you know, to put one foot forward and the other one back and their hips look so much smaller that way. Have you noticed that? They take your pictures that way. But we're like that because... <clears throat> We're like that because we want the best angle on things. We want the very best angle that we could possibly come up with. And that's the way we are with sin. We try to always find a point of view that hides reality. But it'll never work unless you see sin the way God sees sin. David could have said, in a technical sense, I didn't kill Uriah. Did I pull the trigger? Did I shoot the arrow? Did I throw the spear? No, no, it was those Ammonites. It was the enemy that killed him. And the truth is, if you want to, you can justify anything. 
That's the way, that's the way this generation is pretty much taught to think. Colleges are telling us that, you know, all points of view are equally valid. My point of view, your Christian point of view really doesn't have any more merit than the point of view of a Satanist or a hedonist or a Marxist or a Nazi or a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, genocide might seem wrong to you, but there's a, probably another valid point of view, you know. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there must be an ultimate point of view. There must be someone who says, wait a minute, this is what's true. This is the truth. Otherwise, no one will ever be responsible for evil. First thing David does, he says, I'm going to see sin the way you see sin. Secondly, he admitted his sin and took full responsibility. Verse 3 says, I acknowledge my transgressions. And in verse 4, he says it real plain, I've sinned. Do you know why people do terrible things? Because 99.9% of the time, they find ways of avoiding responsibility. Oh, yeah, yeah, I sinned. But you should have seen what they did to me that made me sin. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I sinned. I, I, you know, I committed adultery. But you should have seen the way my wife was treating me. She forced me. Sure, I made it with Bathsheba, but I'm the king. You don't know the pressure I face. I needed this. She made me feel like a man. I know it's against the rules, but, but, but. We always got the butt. Of course, we come by it naturally. That was the way Adam and Eve started, you know. Eve said, it was this serpent, you. It was, and then Adam's going, it was this woman, you. Gave me. But David cuts deep in his own heart because he says, God, I know this about you. You desire truth in the inward parts. He says, the truth is, I sinned. And the truth is, I sinned because I wanted to sin. Now, if you're going to get sin out of your heart, you've got to understand. You're going to have to, it's like cancer. You're going to have to cut deep enough to get it all out. Most of us hardly ever cut deep enough to get it all out. But David cuts deep enough here to get the sin out because he's willing to see it and then he's willing to quit making excuses. Thank God for Nathan. He comes up and points his finger in the face of the king and says, David. It wasn't the war. It wasn't the sword. It wasn't the enemy. You killed Uriah. I love what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, when you sin, you always sin and completely sin because you want to. I know some of you are struggling with that. Wait a minute, time out. I, I didn't want to lie, I just, I had to lie. I had to lie or I would lose my job. Yeah, but if you get to the inner part, you'll have to say, no, I wanted to sin. I wanted money and, and security more than I wanted honesty. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to cheat on that test. I didn't want to. It's just that my parents have these unrealistic expectations on my life, and I just, I'm forced to do it. And if you get to the inner part, you're going to have to say, wait a minute, I wanted to sin. I wanted the affirmation rather than I wanted the discipline of studying. And I think this is an important truth. If any of you ever write down things in sermons, maybe you want to write this down. Circumstances never, ever cause you to sin. They may shape your sin. They may shape 
the kind of sin you choose, but circumstances don't make you sin. And it's not repentance until it cuts all the way in. That means no excuse making. Nobody ever, ever makes you sin. You sin because you want to. So number one, I got to, I got to see the sin the way God sees it. Number two, I got to admit the sin. Number three, I got to grieve the sin. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, when you read that, don't you think that can't be true? Against you only have I sinned? What about Uriah's family? What about Bathsheba? What about your own nation? What about your own trust as, as the king of the nation? Let me tell you what I think is going on and why David chose this kind of language. And I think this is really the key to cutting deep enough to get the sin out of your life. He begins by saying, in verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me according to your, NIV says, unfailing love. New King James says, loving kindness. And basically David is saying, God, please pardon me because of your great compassion. Please pardon me because you love me so much. And David, now listen carefully, David wounds himself by seeing the compassion of God. Now don't get confused here, please. But it is not the law that drives him to deep repentance. It's God's love. It's not fear of punishment that goes deep enough What makes this wrong, says David, is not that I broke the law, though surely I have broken the law. What makes this so horrible is that I have broken the heart of God. I've marred the loveliness of God. I've trampled him. And David begins a process of making himself miserable, not because he's afraid of God, not because he's afraid of the consequences or getting kicked out of school or whatever, but David makes himself miserable because he begins to see the mercy of God again, the love of God that he once knew. The law, of course, exists to define sin. The law exists to restrain sin. But law will never transform your heart. It never will. It will never transform your heart. And so David is not even, con- he's not even focused on the consequence of sin. What he's focused in is, God, your love, your unfailing love, your tender love. I want more of your, of your love. He's not even focused on sin's impact to himself. He's focused on sin's impact to God. And I've done some word study on this, and I, I don't know that we have time to talk about all of it, but this word, this loving kindness, this unfailing love that David is approaching God on, on the basis of, then it's a, and they're powerful images. And I don't know if David was thinking about any of these, but he could have been thinking about some of these images because they're all previous to his own history. One of the images I love of the unfailing love is in Exodus 32. And you remember how Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law. And he comes down and, and God and, and he are talking. And they begin to hear the noise of the congregation down. And what are they doing down there? You remember? What are they doing? They're worshiping a false god. And they've made the golden calf. And, and God gets really ticked. And, and he says something that I think is one of the most profound Old Testament sayings anywhere. He says... And again, I'm quoting from the New International Version. God comes down, he hears the noise, and he says, Leave me alone, that I might destroy them and make another nation for you, Moses. And, and really what God is saying, if you, if you trace that out, God says, Let me die. Today is the day I want to die. Let me die. Free me. 
And God, of course, is trying to teach something to Moses and the people. He's not, ever, he's not changing his mind. God doesn't change his mind. The only way God could ever change his mind is if he got more information. And he can't get more information because he already has all the information. So he's not changing his mind, but he's trying to get a point across. And the point that he's trying to get across is, in spite of what they've done, in spite of what they're doing, I am so bound to them with my heart. I am so bound to them with my love. I want to let them go. I want to relinquish myself of this love, but I can't quit loving them because I'm God. If I quit loving them, I quit being God. And maybe David was thinking about that image. Or maybe he was thinking about the image of Abraham. The covenant began and God said, cut the animals in two and parade them out there and God walked in the middle of those cut-apart animals, and that was all about, it was all about this unfailing love, this love that is bound to David, because God is saying, listen, I'm a just God, and, and your sin is going to disqualify us from being together, and you're going to fail, but I am going to bless you, Abraham, regardless of the cost. I'll find a way, Abraham, even if it means being cut apart like this animal, I will never quit loving you. And, and of course... Those of us on this side of the cross know that God did find a way to keep his heart bound to sinful man. And it involved the cutting apart of the person of Jesus Christ. It's because this unfailing love drove God to find a way to keep loving you when you sin. Somebody ought to say amen right there. And so David sees this love, and when he sees this love... He realizes that he committed his sin long before Bathsheba ever came into his bedroom. He realizes that he committed his sin when there was some kind of a vacuum or some kind of a suction that left, that, that, that engaged his own heart and created his need for her. And what had happened was that long before he had ever physically sinned, he had ignored God's love. He had forgotten God's love. And that's what created the opportunity for such tragedy. Come on, guys. It wasn't about the sex. It wasn't about the murder. It was about David's runaway heart that had violated God. It was about David who had disregarded the God who had loved him so much. And he had known that love. How could that happen? How could that happen? How, what's wrong with you, David? How could you neglect the love of God and become so vulnerable to sin? I think I know the answer to that. It's in the psalm. He lost the joy of his salvation. So of course he lost the joy of his salvation. He committed adultery. He committed murder. You always lose the joy of your salvation when you sin. Yeah, but I think he lost the joy of his salvation, and that's what predisposed him to sin. I think he committed the sin because he lost the joy of his salvation. And so I think his confession of sin is kind of like this. Oh, God, I, I forgot you loved me. I wasn't ravished by you anymore. You weren't the center of my life. You weren't the joy of my soul. That's why I sinned. I forgot you. And ladies and gentlemen, I think this is the cure that cuts deep enough to get rid of the sin in our lives. I can hear David saying, Oh God, what beauty is like your beauty? Whose arms could be like your arms? What love could be like your love? How could I settle for this when I had had this? Truly, the concern of my heart for my church is not only that we would cut out the adultery and the spirit of murder where we gossip about one another, and Lord knows there's enough of that going on in the church. 
And, and, and it's despicable, and I hate it. But you know what I hate just as much? That there are people who have known the love of God, and they come on Sunday mornings, and they fold their arms, and they go through the motions, and they sing the songs, and they pray their prayers, and they forgot the love of God. They forgot. They forgot the love of God. And they're on a slippery slope. Sooner or later, they'll blow their life apart. And the fourth point is this. You got to see the sin, you got to admit the sin, you got to grieve the sin, and then you got to forsake the sin. And in verses 1 through 9 of this psalm, we see all the first three points, but I really think the rest of the psalm is about the fourth point, which is which is a transformed life. Cuz listen, if you do the first three, there will be permanent change. And I think that's what happened for David. I think the rest of his history would indicate that there was something really significant that permanently changed in his faith and in his heart. And we don't have time for this, but there's a spiritual pattern here that I really like. And the spiritual pattern is David obeyed God, then he repented, then he became intimate again with the Lord, and then he became useful to the Lord. And I really have disdain for people who want to be useful to the Lord but don't want to have intimacy with the Lord. Well, the consequences of David's sin remained, as you know, Adonijah and Absalom. And, but there's something really neat. And you know that Solomon, who was Bathsheba's son, was the great, 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 I didn't count the generations, but great, great, great grandfather of who? Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy where, David, where, where Matthew is proving that Jesus has the right to David's throne, in that genealogy, you find these words. David the king begat Solomon by her who had been Uriah's wife. What's, what's he trying to say? I'm not sure all that he's trying to say, but one of the things he's trying to say is that there are going to be consequences every time you sin, but we never get to go to plan B. He says, even in your sin, I have enough grace and ability to work in your sin and to work through your sin, and I'm going to work in you in greater ways than you ever imagined, even after you have fallen, even after you have failed. There is no plan B. There's only repentance. Probably you haven't gone as far as David. Adultery or murder. Maybe you haven't blown your life apart. But there may be some here today who have forgotten his unfailing love. That the holy God of the universe has inextricably bound his heart to you. If you don't live with awareness of that, that's a danger zone. It's a really big danger zone. And I guess my prayer for you this morning as we close is that you one more time would just acknowledge and live and know that he really loves you. And that you would receive that love and return that love and love him back. Before we have our closing prayer, I ask Brother Jenkins to come and just lead us in a song. So we'll sing and then we'll pray. Don't leave. Would you stand, please? God, oh, love of God, how rich and pure. It's not in your hymnal, but let's sing the chorus. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure.
a prayer for the Ephesian church and he said I pray that you would know the love of God that passes knowledge <laughs> I'm so intrigued with that saying he, he says you know I wish that you would just experience and perceive God's love but you'll never you'll never fully comprehend it and I, and I think that's true you'll never fully comprehend the love of God but you can experience it you can live in it you can live with an awareness of it pledged when I came that I wouldn't tell old Bible college stories, but when I was in Bible college, the greatest temptation to my soul was to lose the sensitivity to God's love. I became so familiar with holy things that I lost my sense of awe. I just lost my sense of awe at God. I mean, chapel all the time and headquarters and what do you do? What do you do? You're just in holy things, in holy places all the time. And you lose your sense of awe. You, ladies and gentlemen, it's so dangerous. It'll blow your life apart if you don't live with an awareness of how much He loves you. How much He loves you. I know that David's confession was a public repentance. and I really struggle with giving this message and not giving you an opportunity to repent not repent of adultery or murder necessarily just to repent of forgetting God's great love for you he loved you so much he gave his only begotten son that if you believe in him you don't perish but you live you live you live so if it's okay president we just some are already come would you just like to come and spend a time in prayer and, and you can close whatever is appropriate Those of you to whom the Lord is speaking this morning, I invite you to come now. We're going to sing this chorus another time, and no one moving yet, please, to, to leave the chapel. Let's sing again, Brother Jenkins. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart about this truth of needing once again to experience the indescribable love of of our God, please come now.